Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audio book download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash necessary blackness. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from. You can access it from your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I would like to give thanks to the ancestors, known and unknown, those who have paved the way for us to survive this moment of time and to have a reference point to use as a blueprint to deal with these hellish times we are living in. I would also like to give honor and reverence to the woman of the universe for your superior work, for bringing forth the spiritual information through the triple stage of darkness of your womb and giving birth to God. We would like to give reverence to the universe and praises to the indigenous. My name is Raheem Shabazz, and this is Necessary Blackness Podcast. Necessary Blackness Podcast, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. with award-winning journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz. This podcast is only for those who are unapologetic because the mind of the conscious man or woman recognize no monopoly on truth. Truth is relative and always to be sought. Peace and power, black family. This is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are here for another episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast. And today we have a special guest. Her name is Nawasha Edu, and Nawasha teaches the art and science of black love culture to help black people find, keep, and perfect sacred and divine love. Nawasha believes all success is the result of successful relationships. She is also the co-founder and co-director of Acoma House Initiative, a culture-based counseling and consulting firm. She is the co-creator of Acoma Day, the cultural alternative to Valentine's Day, currently celebrating in 11 countries and author of several best-selling books, including Acoma Day, a guide into the sacred science of soul mating and culture alternatives to Valentine's Day, and You Are What You Cheat, a guidebook into understanding and overcoming infidelity. Wow. I didn't even know you can get a book and a guide to overcoming infidelities. But this is going to make an interesting conversation, and we're not going to waste no time. We're going to get right into it. Now, Nawasha, we have spoke previously, and I have been privy to see you do a presentation, and that's why I requested you for this interview, because I want to discuss... Black childhood trauma. And I remember during your presentation, you went into that when you were talking about ACER. Is that how you could mm-hmm. pronounce it? It's called ACEs? Yep, the ACEs study. A lot of times people call it we're just ACEs. Okay. And my first question in dealing with that, right? Can you explain for those that don't know what ACER actually stands for and mm-hmm. what it's about? Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for reaching out to me. I'm so happy to be able to share this with your listeners. Um, the ACE study, the A stands for ACE. So it is Adverse Childhood Experiencing. And basically, it was a study in the mid-90s for a couple of years. And it was thousands of people um, in Southern California who had a physical exam matched with a, a survey of their early childhood experiences. And what was that the childhood experiences that were negative or adverse correlated with them having actual physical, emotional, or mental challenges later in adulthood. So I think it's a really interesting study. Anyone can Google it and find uh, examples to take the ACEs test yourself. But the higher your ACEs score, the more likely you were to suffer from different kinds of cancers or, you know, heart disease or different types of challenges. And I think it's really interesting because it implies what we kind of know culturally, definitely in indigenous cultures, that there is a mind-body, you know, emotional connection. But a lot of times in this overt 
culture that we're living in, the dominant culture, you know, we're told that things that happen to you as a child, you're going to forget them or that you're just going to overcome them without a lot of work. So anyone who's listening can do the ACEs test and can definitely take um, look at more information about the ACEs study. But the information that they found is what is carrying through to today. So here we are a couple decades later, really understanding that the trauma that you experience as a child can affect your adult life. And I think we also understand that even generational trauma can have an effect on us now as adults, which I think is so important when you take a look at our, our situation in America, Black America, but even all around the world. We really have to understand why we have the adults that we have right now. And a lot of it is because of how we experience childhood. Wow, that 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 is deep. And one of the takeaways is that you, you mentioned indigenous people and you mentioned uh, black children. Could you tell me what happens to children that are overexposed to adverse childhood experience? Because I know you said that this study can um, correlate with everybody, but mm-hmm. as a black child, they have a different uh, worldview and they are mm-hmm. subjugated to certain ills of society like no other ethnic group. So can you Absolutely. can you tell me what happens to those children that are overexposed to adverse childhood experience? Well, a lot of times for black children, you know, the, the more adverse childhood experiences you have, the more higher your A score, so the more adverse childhood experiences you have, it has a greater impact on future black so that could be as a perpetrator or as a victim, and definitely, again, physical health and well-being. A lot of times with men, you know, we have this um, culture where it's almost a rite of passage for young men to experience violence, spend time in prison, or, you know, to have violence perpetuated on them. So the more higher the higher age score, the more adverse experiences, you're really kind of setting up your child to be a victim or to be a perpetrator of violence, definitely for young men. For young women, a lot of times when you are suffering from neglect or suffering from domestic violence, or you even see those examples as a child, you're more likely to be a victim of violence, and you're also more likely to confuse love. So a lot of times for boys and girls, this leads to like um, going into puberty early, to having a lot of promise. And some of it is it's pretty obvious, I think, when you take a look at it, that it could be that way. Because a lot of times the physical abuse, emotional neglect, can come across as love, especially if it's coming from your early caregivers. So if it's your mom that was abusing you, your grandmom, your auntie, your dad, what happens is you as a child think that this is how life is supposed to be. And this is how to love me acts. But once I go into puberty... I'm either looking for more of the same or if I recognize that that's not how love should be and that's not how someone who loves me should act, I go out of my way now to find love, which definitely gets confusing again in in our culture that we're living in. So if you are having any of those types of challenges, so any type of, um, you know, unstable family, domestic abuse, any type of uh, substance abuse, all of those things are adverse childhood experiences. So if your parents were divorced, if you lived only with, you know, one caregiver, any of those are not ideal. And so your the scale gets tipped to one side. And then you have to process life as a child and make up all your key decisions at that age, which then that's going to be your lens for the world. So for a lot, of t- a lot of times who are abused by their mothers end up hating women. <laughs> so to keep it super simple, <laughs> your mother is your first example of a woman. If that relationship is skewed in any way, you can feel a burden because you know you're supposed to love her, but then you also can feel insensitivity, you know, because you're kind of wishing that she would stop hitting you or wish that she would stop calling you names. So you really only have two options, which is to repeat that and look for a woman who also does that, what your mother or for you to finally get some payback in other women, you can turn to someone who is kind of cold. Even if you're not, not physically abusing a woman that you're with, you can still have less 
sensitivity for women's problems or for women's position in the world, how to understand that polarity between men and women is a person who's either neglecting you or just straight up abusing you. And a lot of times, young women, you know, are women typically abuse children in popular culture. A lot of times we see the father as the disciplinarian, but because women spend more time with their children, typically that you got hit more by your mom or neglected or abused more by your mom just because she spent more time with you. So just off of a default, she was more likely to abuse or neglect. So now when that happens, we also don't know how to develop female relationships, or we don't know how to trust women. And we can also look to seek soft attention and soft touch and loving energy for sex again. So typically people who are abused go on to have more children. They go on to have children earlier. They go on to have a lot of different challenges that can be traced back to their childhood. Oh, wow. You know, you spoke about physical abuse, emotional abuse. You spoke about the psychological effects that um, someone would have if they are prone to disrespect their mother. And um, that is definitely key because we see that time and time again throughout society. Now, my next question, because it was recently revealed that there are certain schools now that are adopting a trauma-informed approach to discipline. And they're saying that the suspension rate has been reduced by 85%. And I'm a big advocate of education and keeping our kids in school. And I think that there's a big and huge disparity when it comes to suspension of black children. And according to this study, they said if you use trauma-informed approach, that suspension rate can be um, reduced by 85%. What other Uh positive results have ACEs yield? Well, I think the conversation about mental health and emotional health is definitely coming from our understanding that one thing leads into the next. So I think it's great that schools are looking to be trauma-informed or make sure that their staff is trauma-informed because, I mean, you spend a lot of time in school as a young person, right? So you're there from, like, eight-ish to four. That's, like, your whole day. So if the person who is there can know to look out for certain things as trauma and not just as blatant disrespect, not just as, you know, challenging the teacher or challenging other students, if you can be clued in to what trauma how it can affect your behavior and how it can affect your relationships, then you can really do something that's appropriate instead of always just going to get, kick the kids, you know, the child out of school um, with a suspension or a detention or you can really help them. And I think that that is one of the positive results. You have to make sure that your staff is well-trained though and that you have not just the ability to see the trauma but then to do something about it. So I know a lot of schools have done um, you know, meditation is a lot of schools have said, hey, you can leave this classroom for a few minutes and go to another room, but you don't necessarily have to be suspended or expelled from the school. So I think that those things are all great because really what we're trying to do is help our children balance what our actual life is. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's hard to get rid of all trauma because we're living in crazy times and, and uh, you know, the effects of racism and generational trauma, but you do want to be able to have more awareness. So I think something like that study, it brings it to everyday conversation in a way. You know, the idea of, hey, especially in the black community, that we it's okay to talk about mental health, emotional well-being. It's like I think that the beginnings of it not being taboo anymore can really see as an effect of, something like the ACE study. The fact that you can even Google it and see where you stand. But this is really only coming from, you know, the 90s. The study is actually still going in a way where we're still going to be monitoring people as they start to grow older and, and how it affects their behavior and relationships. The study is still tracking what those people are dying from and how those experiences are showing up in their, in their senior years. So I think it's going to be far into the future, not far, but a couple generations into the future where it's going to be very commonplace. But right now, I see um, the positive as being the fact that schools are even discussing it, 
the fact that there's an option besides just getting the child from in front of your face through suspension and then really just caring about who the child is as a person to prepare them for learning. Because it's not just, especially in schools, it's not just a matter of show up at 8 o'clock, do whatever you're going to do, let me tell you some homework, and you go home. It's good to care about where the child is going home to or even all the stuff that a child has to walk through in order to get, because some of the trauma is not necessarily even coming from your caregiver. It could be at your neighbor's house, mm-hmm. that you're parents in the fight, domestic violence. It could be, you know, I know all through this city, where I'm in Trenton, New Jersey, so all through this city, young people step over people who are homeless, yeah. have to step over litter and trash. You know, early in the morning, you're hearing sirens already. And you send a child into school never addressing that trauma that's real in the world. We don't even discuss news stories with our children. That's so right. a lot of times, that's post-traumatic stress, but I had a mentor of mine say it was urban traumatic stress because it was never potent. It's just constant. Mm. <laughs> so it's not even something that you can put in the past and say it's post-traumatic stress. It's like, okay, I'm trying to first today, and there's a police siren of you know, ambulance, a fire issue, and it's only 7 o'clock in the morning. And I have to kind of ignore that and go sit in a classroom when I did hear my neighbor's fight or somebody, you know, was killed or all of these things. And now I'm supposed to just focus on reading or I'm supposed to do geometry, you know, and I'm not in the right mindset. And a teacher addresses that with me, and then I, you know, have attitude with her, suspension. So Mm -hmm. rather than doing that, it is so great. You know what? You need two minutes. Let me teach a child how to meditate, how to relax, how to, you know, maybe sit in a different kind of environment. The school can be so sterile with the desks and chairs, and maybe you just need a lounge chair for two minutes. <laughs> but I think all of those things are the positive that's coming out of it. Us acknowledging as adults that we have suffered from trauma, that the world is very traumatic, and we can't children to be in bubbles like they don't live in the world with us. That's and right. that they can't acknowledge all the rest of their personality when they come and get in our class. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are just joining us, we are speaking to Nawasha, and we are talking about childhood trauma. And we're going to go to a commercial break. But before we go to a commercial break, I want to ask you one more question because I want to relate it to what's going on today. In this day and in this time, because we're living in a world where black folks are faced with racial bias and violence from law enforcement. And these are traumatic events that are being played mm-hmm. out daily on television and social media. Is ACID something that can help in reducing the negative outcome? I think so. I think it's really for, uh, it's for parents, it's for all adults to really understand that can affect you as you can have trauma as a child and it can go on to affect you as a teenager, as a young adult, as an older adult. So this is with everything. But when we are stripped, when we're talking about police brutality, when we're talking about bias, where, you know, sharing stories online, when we are letting our children see our phones or we're playing the news, we have to make filter the conversation in the right way. So there's definitely bias. There's definitely racial profiling. There's definitely the effects of um, oppression in our culture. But you cannot tell your child that they are only ever a victim. Mm. So when you're, when you're filtering as an adult, you have to say, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. But you don't want to set it up to give your child more trauma <laughs> by making them feel like a victim or telling them that they are a, lot, are a victim. And a lot of times, even child abuse, comes back from a parent as a form of protection. So sometimes we are beating our children and saying, if I don't beat you, you're going to get stopped by the police. If I don't beat some sentence to you, you're going to get, you know, in tr- and that's not necessarily true. So you don't want to take that in as a parent or as an adult, because I'm also an educator, right? So you can be in front of young people in education. You can be in front of young people in the neighborhood. It can be your nieces and nephews, or your actual children, you want to be mindful about how you're talking about what's happening today and really making sure, again, that you're helping a child balance their personality and understand their world, understand their environment. So how do they need to maneuver is a real-life lesson. But saying, 
you know, you're going to get into this issue. If that's the case, you want to tell them how to get out of the issue. And not only, you know, that there's this inevitable track that you're on as a young black person, especially in urban environments where you're interacting with the police often. That's right. And I know that um, this uh, program, if you if you may call it that, um, is being used by social providers, uh, the welfare system, housing authority, homeless shelters, and domestic violence shelters. And it would be a good thing if the police department start using it so they can mm-hmm. understand the community in which they police. So with that said, we're going to go to a quick commercial break, and I will see you on the other side. And when we return, we're going to talk with Nawasha about her books. And I want to hear about that book that can control <laughs> infidelity. Because uh, if it was that simple, I think the world would have been a very different place than it is now. But we're going to talk about that and more. Um, make sure you stay tuned. This is Raheem Shabazz and Necessary Blackness Podcast. Don't go nowhere. Yo, check out the award-winning docuseries, Elementary Genocide. This docuseries provides a critical expose of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and the connection between slavery, capitalism, and the prison industrial complex. This docuseries features Dr. Umar Johnson, Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, Killer Mike, David Banner, Professor James Small, Kaba Kamene, and so many other people. Check out Elementary Genocide, the school-to-prison pipeline, Elementary Genocide 2, the Board of Education versus the Board of Incarceration, and the latest installment, Elementary Genocide 3, The Academic Holocaust. It's all available now at elementarygenocide.com. Tune in for the drop. I am Dr. Kira Taylor, and when I'm tired of listening to fake news, I will listen to some real news, and I will check into the Necessary Blackness podcast with my friend Raheem Shabazz. Aeem Shabazz is one of my guys from way back, and you're now listening to his show, Necessary Blackness Podcast. Stay tuned. This is a co-op cultivated roots media, and I choose to tune into Necessary Blackness because staying connected to my blackness is very necessary. Yo, that's what I'm talking about, man. You'll hear it here first. (laughs) Now our feature presentation. Peace and power, black family. This is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are back with Nawasha Edu. Did I pronounce it right? Yep. Okay. And we are back. And in this second half of our interview, we're going to talk about her book. So let me start off first by asking you to tell us about the sacred science of soul mating and Akuma. Akuma, right? How, How do you pronounce that? Yep, it, it is the acoma. So acoma. the acoma is the heart outline, that heart shape that we know. But the acoma is an adinkra symbol that is, you know, what we commonly call the heart. So it's our, a language, really, based on symbolism. So it's kind of like netter or it's like um, Chinese characters. So what it is is that one symbol can represent a lot of meaning. And the acoma what means um, patience or it is like the literal heart of you is inside of another person or that person's heart is inside of you. So we use the word heart a lot in English as symbolism. Like we say things like somebody's wearing their heart on their sleeve or, or I'm leading with my heart. I memorize something by heart. So we know that the heart is more than the literal organ and it really represents the soul in a way. So we use that symbol. My husband and I use the acoma for the holiday, and also for the book. So the book is called Coma Day, Guidebook into the Sacred Science of Soul Mating. And soul mating is another indigenous practice. So thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago to infinity, the purpose of soul mating was to link men a woman or a young, a young boy and a young girl together who were united in a spiritual realm. So the story of soul mating is that everyone is ex- existing as consciousness first, and there's kind of like a call for you to de- develop as a person and ability to get a body and to be born into the world. So this is kind of like a cosmological story in indigenous black culture that says that we are unified as one, which is God, and then we are also unified in pairs, 
for the polarity of God, which is the male and the female. At any given time, someone is going to conceive a child, they're kind of pulling from that essence of God. So you can be um, conceive a child and have a girl or have a boy. When that happens, you're kind of pulling from a soul nature, and each individual child that's born has its own purpose, but when they align with their soulmate, they have this third purpose, which is a perfect complementary energy to each other, where they balance each other's character, they draw out the best of each other, and then that, of course, forms a third purpose to somehow benefit the community and the world that they live in. Mm. So the science of soulmating is really like the story of, I would say, like arranged marriages, are the um, the effect of that now. It's a little distorted. In our traditional culture, we were saying, oh, okay, I see this young boy, and I see his personality, and I know his family story. And all of the midwives in the community were linked, kind of like at a um, database. So mm-hmm. if I knew all the people that I helped birth, and this other mid- midwife knew all the people she helped birth, then we could link up the children who would be complementary and who are on the same kind of life path and, and mission, but at complementary energies. And this is Moa Negeti in a South African culture, and that's what we write about in the book is... Mo Negeti? Yep. And this is what is, would be like a doula or a, a midwife. This person could kind of say, hey, this woman is pregnant. I can understand this woman's story again and what she's been through. I can understand the father's story and what he's been through. I can kind of like divine the purpose of this child. So because in indigenous culture we had um, spiritual conceptions, conscious conceptions, we were asking for children (laughs) and we were trying to perpetuate life. So because all of us are conscious, the person who is really taking care of the mother while she's pregnant is divining the purpose of the child. And truthfully, sometimes people would actually talk to the child. If you've ever seen that um, children's story, Curie Coo, have you ever seen that movie? No, I haven't. Enlighten us. No, it's a little boy um, is basically born talking and walking. But it's a great story. It's a, I think it's French, I'm pretty sure. But if you look it up, it's a, a short cartoon, the animated film, but he is born in a mission. So he's a little baby moving to solve this challenge that the community has. But this story which is true, the Moa Medetti and many cultures would divine through the womb and ask the child, basically, why are you here? So if you know, um, a lot of our elders have told us this, like Dr. Africa, you know, um, Queen Afua, Dr. Sadie, that you have consciousness as soon as you are conceived. And then it's just a matter of you forming yourself. So that, that little mass of consciousness is going to start to differentiate and then have lungs and have, a, have bones and have a heart and have, you know, tissue, hair, eyeballs, but originally you were just one mass of consciousness. Mm. And then you kind of grow through the nine months being in the womb to look like a human being. So because of that, what you really have is you as that consciousness, cough, which is why the, the heart or the acoma means something. It represents an organ, but it also has an emotional meaning and a a representation of consciousness, which is our soul. So typically that's why um, in Egyptian folklore or in Egyptian um, relief, you can see a lot of times that the judgment scene, what is really being weighed as your personality is your heart against the feather, right? Mm, because that represents you as Exactly, exactly. So we know that the heart represents more than the literal organ, and it's symbolic of certain things. The soul meeting is to link up with the right complement so that your individual mission and in life is furthered and you help the other person perfect their character so their mission is furthered and then you come together as a third thing. You have your mate and then you have you together and what that represents as a third thing. But unfortunately, we don't learn how to mate. We don't learn how to love. And some of it is coming from trauma and some of it is just you know, the generational trust that keeps us from giving lessons and values and beliefs and passing down the right things to our children. So that's really why we wrote the book is because we think relationships are the most important thing and we think that we are not necessarily doing that right <laughs> as a culture. So that is leading to more trauma. So if you, if you have, you know, 75% of households being led only with one parent and only with a mother, a lot of times that's 
adding to the trauma that we already are suffering as a from as a global, you know, community. And then if we say, hey, we don't know how to communicate, we don't know how to respect each other, we don't know how to love, we don't respect sex, you know, as a sacred act, and we don't we don't have conscious conception anymore, all of those things are also adding to the trauma. So what we did in Acoma Day is really talk about relationships a little bit, talk about the need for, we need to replace that Valentine's Day because that is hurting us, it's providing more trauma. And then we have like over 30 exercises that you can do in order to unify in different areas of your life and, and really practice the science of soul mating. And that's what I want to talk to you about, the alternative, the cultural alternative to Valentine's Day. And why is it important to us? Because we have all these European holidays that significantly it does nothing to us. And it's not mm-hmm. for us and it's not by us. So why is this important and how can it best be practiced amongst us as a people? Well, I think one of the primary, especially for black people, we have to know that we were practicing love. We were practicing the science of soul mating, we were practicing conscious conception, and we are the oldest people on the planet who have ever done anything in the name of love. So that is write a poem, give a gift, build a monument. We are the first people to do that. So when we, as the first people to do say that the epitome of love is romantic, we are going against our, our ancestors because we're honoring Rome, right, who came far after us. <laughs> When we are saying, hey, the best thing I can do is give a Valentine's Day card, we're honoring St. Valentine. And then even on the card, we might have Cupid or something else that's outside of our reference. So I think a lot of times, and this is another thing that we do to our children, because we set them up to celebrate Valentine's Day in preschool before they even ask us to do it. We set them up to do that. So when we are buying little Valentine's cards and we are saying, okay, I love have a romantic night and we're using all of this these kind of words that don't mean what we want to say or we don't understand the meaning that we're actually giving it just hurts our relationship and so many people break up right before valentine's day <laughs> yeah <laughs> they don't want to give gifts and then so many people are going to give something hollow so then you're spending money we know valentine's day in america in the united states of america not even south america not canada the United States of America, Valentine's Day is at $18 billion a day How for much? the United States Say of America. Say that again. $18 billion for one holiday. One wow. day. one day. So Valentine's Day is second after the winter holidays, which are in the hundreds of billions. But the mm. next biggest holiday is Valentine's Day because you're getting dinner, jewelry, flowers. So there's a whole bunch of systems set into place. Right after New Year's, so you see everything is pink and red and white. So it's telling you that you need to celebrate it. But for us as black people, we just need to know that, of course, people were honoring love all around the world before there was a Roman culture. And what do we know of the Roman example of love? So there's no way around the Roman examples had a lot of pedophilia. They had a lot of misogyny. Even in Valentine's Valentine's Day was Lupercalia, and they were whipping women with pieces of skin in order to increase fertility. So we know that that's not necessary <laughs> to increase fertility, right? Black people knew you could take herbs, you could, you know, have sex at certain times, and you would, you're likely to be more fertile. We knew a lot of different things because we should just beat you in order for you to give birth more often. Yeah, but that's that sick thing, uh, judo-Christian belief. Right, you know, isn't that crazy? Yes. They would just Same line up crazy. some women and say, hey, take a walk, and as you walk, a whole bunch of men are going to beat you, and then hopefully <laughs> you're going to give birth to a lot of babies, right? But that's, that's more misogyny. Yes. You just don't understand Absolutely. that even the, um, the Valentine's card. You know, one of the traditions in Lupercalia was to put all of the young girls' names in a bowl and then just have a man pick a name, and that's who you could have sex with. Wow. And then you could marry her if you wanted to marry her. After you raped her, assaulted her, you could basically claim her as a wife or as property. So sometimes we don't know what we're doing when we exchange Valentine's cards or we, you know, have these leftovers of old rituals. We really need to look at our own rituals and systems and our own beliefs and just bring them into the future with us. The same way that we have done these other, you know, like you said, Roman or Greco 
type of examples, we've brought the, we brought those into the future. So That's some right. of the things we do right now are from thousands of years. But then sometimes when, you, when you know, we're looking at black culture, we don't want to look back at 5,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, but that's what white culture has done. A lot of the things we're doing are, are honoring, you know, Greeks and Romans, which was a thousand, thousands of years ago. Yep, and you have to look back in order to go forward. And that's why that's in right. the African tradition, we have the Sankofa bird. So my next question is, tell me about what made you want to create the uh, initiative that deals with sacred soulmate and, and that comes with a curriculum and how does that positively affect one's relationship? Because from what I'm thinking, if anyone wants to know how to get their soulmate and how to cultivate <laughs> their heart, you actually have a science and a curriculum that can set them on that path, correct? Yeah, yeah, I sure do. Because I think that everybody, at the end of the day, everyone wants love. This is really just my personal belief. This is what I live by. We are not on the planet, by, and we are doing things to improve our relationships, even if it's work, even if it is, you know, our relationships with our children. But we are really communal people as black people. So although we're in America living a very, like, individualistic lifestyle where you say, I'm minding my business, I care about me, I'm trying to get mine, whatever that is, the truth is that's not our regular MO. So typically, if we were left to ourselves, we would create culture that was inclusive and that cared about multiple generations and cared about, because again, the purpose is for you to come to the planet with some unique gift and then to share that. So because I believe that everybody wants love, we just might have skewed perceptions of it from our childhood. I think that we need to learn love and it has to be really deliberate because a lot of times we spend money on business and we know we need to invest in that. We spend money on our health and we know we need to invest in, you know, what we're eating, invest in a trainer. But then when it comes down to relationships, we like, I just, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm <laughs> and that's hurting us. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we care about the art a little bit, which is flowery part of love. And that is coming, I think, from instinct. And that's what we might do when we're courting or when we say, hey, I, I like this person and I have that special feeling and butterflies in my stomach. But then when it comes to logistics, the science, or a lot of times we don't know how to do that. And we need to know how to do it if we're going to last and if we're going to be mindful about relationship brings to others. So, like, if we do have children, or if we're just a couple in the community, because our children right now are learning and learning about love through reality TV, through movies, you know what I mean, through the internet. So, we have to be mindful that even if we don't have actual children, we're still an example of what they can look forward to as, as adults. Absolutely. So, I think it's really to just be like, how do you communicate? How do you let someone know that you love them? So, communication is listening speaking. You know, letting somebody know that you love them is going to be, again, a, a mental level, an emotional level, a physical level. And we really emotional literacy. Like, can I read the emotions of another person? Am I fluid in my own emotions? You know, like, if we make a joke, my husband and I, um, that men can't name emotions from A to Z. So a lot of limited, again, from that early trauma of you can be happy, you can be angry, you can be violent, you can be aggressive, and you can be lustful. But when it comes to the whole range of emotions, you can't experience them all. And the it is, you're going to have some of them, but you don't even have the language to say, I have an emotion for A, I have an emotion for B, I have an emotion for C. So that's some of our literacy again. Can I look um, at my daughter or my woman, and can I understand the emotion that she's going through by the behavior that she's displaying? And then for us... Yeah, that's very telling. It is. I think it's really telling. And even for women, we sometimes look at men and say they don't have emotion, and that's not true. But because we have a disconnect, because we don't know how to communicate with each other, we'll look at and not know how to interpret it. Or we'll look at, you know, the behavior of men trying to solve problems and fix things as though they don't care about the process when that's not necessarily true. So I think there's so many things we need to learn in order to be happy. But at the end of the day, you're not just working to work, and you're not just learning to learn. 
is really all about relationships. So mm-hmm. if we don't acknowledge that relationships are truly the most important thing on the planet, and we can see it when we have entertainers who have millions and millions of dollars and they put in relationships, or millions and millions of dollars and they commit suicide still. So your your well-being is more than your wealth, it's more than your knowledge base, you know, it's more than your material possessions. We really have to get back to an understanding of love and relationships are the most important thing. They're our biggest influence when we are a child, and then they're what we're searching for as adults. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is Nawasha, and she is dropping it heavy on us. And if you are seeking to find your sacred soulmate, she actually (laughs) has an innovative workshop and a culturally-based rites of passage program for men, women, and children. I want her to tell us about that. But before you tell us about your uh, rites of passage program and your workshop, let's talk about your other book that's a guideline to... What, what's, what's the name of it about infidelity? I don't want to mess up that the title. That one is, um, You Are What You so it's a play on words, like you are what you eat, but it's you are what you cheat, and it's another guidebook to understanding and overcoming infidelity. So basically, a lot of the books we do are guidebooks, and that, you know, we're counselors, but we want people to have exercises and actually do something. That's part of also the um, initiative word, is that you, you have to kind of self, because we're out of our cultural context, where you would get a rite of passage. So a lot of our books are, it gives you something to actually do so to have an experience that then changes you. Because a lot of times we just leave stuff at the cerebral level, but mm-hmm. we don't make changes because we just get somewhere, but we don't really do anything with it. So You Are What You Cheat is about the fact that most people are suffering from infidelity in some kind of way. So either you saw your parents, you know, have infidelity, or again, it's on social media, it's, you know reality TV, it's in movies, or you experience that in your early relationships when you're a teenager. So it's either your parents, your relationship right now, your early relationship, or it's all over TV. But the idea is that you are uh, really cheating on yourself. So the idea behind you are what you cheat is that most people only are in a relationship where there's infidelity if they first cheated on themselves by either settling for someone that they knew (laughs) wasn't a good look. Or they're telling themselves that's what they want. Mm. So we go over what the main human needs are. And from a psychological perspective, there's only six. We use human need psychology, which says everybody needs certainty. And right after that, everybody needs uncertainty or variety. Everybody needs to feel significant. Everybody needs love and connection. And then every single person needs to grow and they need to community somehow. The first four in needs that are certainty, uncertainty, significance, and loving connection, that's the people cheat, is that they don't feel they got one of those needs that. So men typically are looking for significance. So they want to feel important. It's coming from oppression in the outside world, but also the internal, I want to feel important in this relationship, in this family. Typically, women need a, a high level of certainty. They need to be, like, taken care of. They need to be sure that things are okay. But people look for love as a drug. So if you don't feel significant, you will cheat with somebody else (laughs) who feels significant. And if you don't feel certain about who you are or where you are or how you look or what you're getting, you will cheat for someone that they could give you that. Mm. A lot of times those other relationships, they're not that now. You know, you're really not significant. Like if you have the affair at work, (laughs) that's your work wife or your work husband. But you don't really pay any bills with them. You don't really have any accountability to them. So sometimes it seems like someplace else because somebody's like, hey, how was your day? And they're listening to you, and it gives you all of the perception of being significant. But truthfully, when it really comes down to it, a lot of those peripheral relationships, they're the first ones to go because they're not significant. Once somebody really finds out about infidelity, that's the first one to drop because you really weren't that important in that person's life. So. I think it's, you know, it's a major issue that we have seen people come to us for as counselors, like trust issues, whether it's real or not. So again, sometimes if you're the little girl who saw your dad cheating or who heard your mom say all the time that all men cheat and men are dogs, 
that gives you make a, a decision real quick. Normally, by the time you're seven, <laughs> you make a decision that is a key decision in your life that you start to filter all other decisions through. So now you'll be like 35, repeating the stuff that your mom said. But what's even more amazing is that because you believe it, because your mom said it when you were six or seven, you will seek and live your life out to prove that it's true, even if it's not. So now you're going to pick men who will cheat. You're going to tell men that they were cheating, even if they weren't, because you have made this decision in your life that is your lens for seeing the world. So it can really disrupt your life to have heard it. And then it's almost like you forget it, that it was just your mom's version of the world. It wasn't real life. So now you're living your whole life saying that, oh, all men cheat. Women, you know, if you don't, if you do practice misogyny, <laughs> or if you do believe that women can't be trusted because of a young man, you're going to live a certain kind of life and call women certain kinds of names and respond to them in a certain kind of way and what they're saying to you. And then it makes it easier for you to cheat or easier for you to not help a person fulfill their needs go to cheat. But it really all starts with you. So everything comes back to the self, which is why we say you are what you cheat. If you change, your relationship can change. And that's really important to know because you don't want to just get rid of somebody. <laughs> I'm not saying that you should deal with infidelity. But what I am saying is... You should work on it. You don't want to... You should work on yourself. Yeah. If you attracted that, you don't want to just leave that person but then go attract it again someplace else. Absolutely. So that's what we have to understand. If somebody cheats on us, it's because we weren't fulfilling their needs. Now, it's not our whole responsibility, but we do have to say, someone's going to cheat if they're completely happy in the relationship. Those things just don't go together. So we have to kind of take ownership and say, is somebody I mean, where out of those six things was I, on a scale of one to ten, where was I less than a seven? Was I less than a seven at telling somebody how certain I was that they were the one? Now, let me ask I you a question. Seven variety. Uh-huh. What if someone has a 10 on all six indicators, right? And someone uh-huh. still cheats. You know, because there, there's, there's people that you can bring everything <laughs> to the game. And uh-huh. there is that one individual, he going to cheat no matter what. Do you, do you think well, that could be a scenario as well? Don't think that that's a real scenario. You don't? So now what, I, what I'm saying is somebody can bring everything to the game, but it's all about perception. So you have two ways that you have to score yourself. You have, am I doing my best at a scale of 1 to 10? And then what would the other person say I was doing on a scale of 1 to 10? Because sometimes we're rating ourselves higher than the truth, right? So if I say right now, how much variety am I, am I giving my husband? And if I'm honest and I say, how how I look, how much variety in how I talk, how much variety in where we go, how much variety in when or where we have sex, right? If I'm like, if I'm not at an 8, 9, or 10, it's hard to be at a 10 all the time. That's like almost impossible also because you've got to have peaks and valleys in a real relationship. But if I just rank myself and say, okay, this days, how much, how certain is my husband that he is the, the love of my life? I have to look at myself and say, did I? it? Did I show it? You know, how am I actually doing that? And then I also have to change it up because what indigenous culture knows is that seven year cycle. So if you're with somebody for one year or two years or three years, that might not be what you do when you're with them at 10 and 12 years and 20 years. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have to say, well, what work is oh my, right. my woman, she loves this. And now we are in year like four. I can't be doing that same thing <laughs> still. Otherwise, it's now no more variety. Absolutely. I, I think it's not possible to be at a level 10 all the time. And it's definitely, when you're satisfied, you don't look for any alternatives. Now, what some people do is they just, they're never satisfied. So I, I do know that there's people like that, that they could be overlooking what is a 9 or 10. Because, again, it's all perception. If you say, hey, I'm going to rate myself and I'm a, I'm me to rate me, you got to see if if you're saying you're a 10, then something is not connecting. The thing you think you're doing is not really not really doing anything. But then the person who has a 2, rest assured, you're not going to sit in a 2 forever. 
So if you're at a two with variety, that's for the next that works, who has her hair different all the time or has a different perfume, seems real alluring because she's providing that sense of variety. So it's safe to say everybody that's saying that they leveled up, that they're 10, <laughs> that they're dime, and that they're on fleek, you might not be really on fleek. You might just be doing that for the book or for the Instagram. But we don't have that much time. Um, I definitely appreciate you for um, giving us all your insight. Um, two minutes or less, tell everybody mm-hmm. about the innovative workshop and your culturally-based rites of passage for men, women, and children, because I think this is something that the community can use. And guess mm-hmm. what? It's culturally-based, family. That means that we don't have to have the Eurocentric teachers, their thoughts, their ideas, their values, their interests, and their principles. We're dealing with African-centered thinking, African cultural-based rites of passage. So real quickly, tell us about that. So what we do is we can work with you individually on whatever your relationship goal or your relationship challenge is. What we need culturally pieces, you're going to get a system coming from our indigenous culture, which takes the seen and the unseen into account. Currently going to um, use the elements and use the science of self in order for you to improve any relationship. And that can be a relationship with a parent, it can be the intimate relationship, or it can be the relationship with the child. So if you want to in working on an individual relationship, and you can just go fill out a little form, schedule yourself for a free consultation. You can go to it's a bit.ly link, so it's bit.ly slash, and then it's soulmate strategy session with every word is a capital. Um, but we also have rites of passage for adults, which we just started Black Love School. So that is another bit.ly link, bit.ly slash, and then Black Love School, capital B, capital L, capital S. And what that is, is those are some of the things that we have learned how to do already. So we just really started this over the summer, but there's a couple classes already loaded, like um, sacred sex and sex symbolism, genital reflexology, um, womb health, penis health. So these are, you should know how whoa, to whoa, use whoa, whoa, whoa. the you one said, that... You said penis help? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. You want to be healthy. Oh, you so said you want to healthy, sure that, penis healthy. Yes, I thought you health, said health. health. Oh, okay. Oh, right. no. Penis I mean, it does healthy. help. It does help to be healthy. <laughs> okay. And but then, you want to make sure you are using um, cultural means, right? So what we mean by cultural is the correct thought, the correct action, correct um, value system. So a lot of times when we have womb issues like fibroids, or penis issues, like maybe erectile dysfunction or something like that, we go to a system that is not holistic. And we might take medication or we might get surgeries, but then those another side effects somewhere down the road, right? So what you can do is just taking an indigenous philosophy or something, doing something culturally based from our culture means that it's going to be holistic for you. So you don't want to, like we said, just get rid of a when you could heal yourself and never have to attract that anymore. And you can also, when you heal yourself, heal others through magnetism. So when you make a change, everybody around you has to change because they can't interact with you the same way. But that's our culture thing as above, so below. You know, Mm -hmm. as within, so without. So we know that when we make an adjustment, everything else has to adjust. And those are some of the classes at school, like magnetism or how to communicate how to manage your thoughts first, then how to listen, how to speak, but then also what is the science of male-female communication? Because we're complements of that same pole of, of human, we have I talk to a man is not the way that I talk to a woman. So the way that I talk to my son is not the way that I talk to my daughter. And a simple technique is men typically think first and then feel second. And women feel first and think second. And it's lightning fast, you know, first to second. But that small adjustment of if a man says, hey, I think blah, 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 blah. But a woman says, well, I feel like blah, 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 blah. That little disconnect can have you feel like you're on two separate pages, two separate chapters, 
when really you might be talking about the same thing. So we have to learn that, though, because that's what we would have gotten a rites of passage. A boy would have learned how to be a boy and how to deal with girls and women and become a husband. A girl would have learned how to, who am I, what is my purpose in life, how do I interact with other girls, but then how do I become a woman and, you know, become a wife and a mother, right? Right now, we don't do that. We just kind of figure it out on our own, and it typically leads to some trauma, which mm-hmm. is more age. And then we just say, don't do this or do this. So a lot of us as adults, we say, I, I had a great example of my parents. They're, they've been married for 50 years, and I love them. They're wonderful. But even though I had that great example, they never really sat down and told me how to communicate, how to love, how to have sex, how to have children, how to forgive, you know, how to accomplish things with our wealth. I never really learned. I just watched them. So I can't necessarily duplicate it in my life. But then you have other people that I don't have example at all. So I know that I don't want to do what my mom did or I don't want to do what my dad did. But that just means I'm going in the opposite to infinity. I still don't know what to do. I just have one thing that I don't want to do. You know, so that's like when people say, hey, um, I'm a vegetarian. Sometimes people say, oh, you're a vegetarian. That means you don't eat meat. And I'm like, yeah, that's true, but I eat fruits and vegetables, right? (laughs) So sometimes when we're only focused on what we don't do or can't do, we're kind of like ourselves of all the other things that we can do. So I think we need a rite of passage and this is like a monthly subscription where you get two master classes a month on communication, on trust, on sex, on building. And then you get a live phone call with me if you're a woman in the, the Queen's Rite of Passage or my husband if you're a man in the King's Rite of Passage. Talking to us live, you get to kind of work out whatever the hard work was that you did in the master class. So well, again, because we believe in, um, you know, the guys. You're going to get something to actually do at the end of every class. Well, I feel like they just got a free class, the <laughs> master class, and sacred soul mating. Now, all they need is the curriculum and the guidance. So, y'all make sure y'all go out and support this sister. Now, how can... Um, I know you gave out um, the, uh, the websites. How can people reach you on social media? You can check us out on Facebook, which is just a coma day every day. That's where we just talk about living the principles of love and the science of things on a daily basis so that you don't have to wait for a holiday. And you can also check um, me out on Twitter, which I hopefully use. I really need to use more. Just with Nawasha, you do. And also on Instagram with Nawasha. And there I'm just talking the art and the science of love, but it's really from the female perspective, because it's just me. So Facebook is me and my husband, Acoma Every Day. And of course, you can check us out on the website, which is acomahouseinitiatives.com. And then that's everything, Black Love School, individual or if you want to, you know, reach us for a workshop or a speaking engagement or something like that, there's a form that you can fill out to let us know what you have in mind. All right, family, and the way you spell a coma is A-K-O-M, so that's a coma day every day on Facebook, and she gave y'all her Twitter handle. Make sure you go out, you follow the sister, and you support her. In closing, is there anything that you didn't say that you would like to say in your last closing words? Um, I would like to say that whatever has happened to you in your relationship is not your fault, you know, so whatever trauma that you do go through as a child, you were definitely a child, Um, whatever you've been through, even in an adult relationship, but now it is your responsibility to do something more for yourself and to really do whatever you're going to do, whether it's joining or seeking me out or my husband out, you definitely want to do something to invest in this area of your life because it's the area that causes the most regret when you're at the end of life. So you don't want to wait too long. You don't want to put it off. If there's a change you want to make in a relationship that you know you can be happier, you need to put yourself on the path to making those changes right now because it's really the most important thing. If you're honest with yourself, and I want everyone to actually be happy and have real 
unconditional love. So if you need a book, come to the website. If you need some support from us, come to the website. But wherever you go, just make sure that you're doing more for love, more for your relationship, and living in alignment with your ancestors. You heard it right here first on Necessary Blackness Podcast. My name is Raheem Shabazz, and we just heard from Nawasha Edu. Make sure y'all go support that sister, and I will see you same place, same time next week right here on Necessary Blackness Podcast. Peace and power, black family. Peace.